This morning, we are beginning a new series, and it's a series in the Psalms, and I believe it's going to be a four-week mini-series. So now I know some of you are like, sweet, a mini-series. Maybe that means mini-sermons. <laughs> Sorry to disappoint. Mini-series, full-size sermons, okay? <laughs> But I'm super excited for us to be in the Psalms again. Uh, a couple years ago, we spent the summer in the Psalms, uh, and it was amazing. So I'm looking forward to unpacking more of the Psalms. Because for many, the book of Psalms is their favorite book in the Bible. Abraham Lincoln felt that way. Martin Luther loved the Psalms. He called them the Bible in miniature. If you were a book publisher... Publishing the Psalms, you could find endless endorsements for the dust jacket. The Psalms, the book of Psalms is one of five books in the Old Testament that are called the wisdom books. Those books are Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and the Psalms. And in the book of Psalms, there are 150 individual Psalms. And each are an inside look at each psalmist's prayers. Various worship leaders in Israel wrote psalms. Solomon and Moses have psalms attributed to them. And a third of the psalms are authored by anonymous authors. But no one penned more psalms than King David. And this morning, we're going to open our Bibles and look at one of the psalms written by King David. Psalms 34, which is considered a psalm of thanksgiving. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out and open them to Psalm 34. If not, there should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And worst come to worst, follow behind me on the screens. Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called, and the Lord heard him. He saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the, the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. 
Not one of them will be broken. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. The Lord will rescue his servants. No one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning, I just ask that my words are the words you want spoken to your people. And for each of us, Lord, this morning, I ask that you help us take our eyes off ourselves, others around us, and then train our eyes on you so we can learn to know you more for who exactly you are, our awesome God. We we pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so this morning, I want to focus specifically on verses 7 through 11. I'm going to read them again real quick. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. So I want to focus on verses 7 through 11, and then I want us to answer three questions. Number one, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Number two, how do we respond when we fear the Lord? And three, what does it mean to lack nothing? So let's first focus on the phrase, fear of the Lord. Specifically, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Honestly, friends, for the amount that Scripture speaks of, the fear of the Lord, not just in this psalm, but throughout Scripture, it seems to be a concept rarely addressed or understood in churches today. And I believe this happens to our detriment for a couple of reasons. First, I think many would assume in our day and age that a God who should be feared would be guilty of some kind of fault. That the fear of the Lord is some kind of leftover relic from some oppressive, archaic view of religion. Now, I think another reason that is, conf- is that it's confusing for some of us. Aren't we supposed to not fear? Doesn't the Bible say perfect love casts out fear? You are no longer slaves to fear? In fact, what is the most common command in Scripture? Be holy, read God's word, give money to the church. Nope. What is it? It's actually fear not. Okay? So what do we do then with this command to fear the Lord? As a kid, my hero was Clyde the Glide Drexler. (laughs) And ironically, I found out yesterday it was Clyde's birthday. All right? But as a grade school kid here in the, Portland 80, or in the Portland area in the 80s and 90s, if Clyde was the man, okay, the man. And if you ask me then what my greatest dream was, no question I would have said, meet Clyde. Now, my best friend throughout elementary school was a kid named Eddie. And almost every day after school, Eddie and I would get together and play basketball, He would wear his Jordan jersey, 
and I would wear my Drexler jersey, and we would pretend to be our heroes. Now back then, and I'm going to date myself with this, they hadn't invented those hoops that you could raise and lower so that you could dunk, right? My hoop, Eddie's hoop, were like bolted into the side of a house, right? Over the garage, like structurally required for the home. And if you really wanted to dunk like Clyde and Jordan, you had to come up with another idea to be able to get up there to dunk. So we came up with this idea. We would sneak into his mom and dad's room and sneak out this small trampoline that his mom used for Jazzercise or Jane Fonda videos. (laughs) Whatever people were doing back in the 80s. And we would put it in just the right spot underneath the hoop so we could jump, jump up and be able to dunk. So there we would be, out in his driveway, with my boombox blaring, pump up the jam, <laughs> bouncing off this trampoline, doing our best impersonations of Clyde and Jordan's dunk, dunks. And now when, when we were doing those dunks, I need you to know, they felt so right. Like we thought we were just nailing them perfectly. But years later, I saw a video of us, and I realized we looked more like wounded ducks falling from the sky (laughs) than Clyde and Jordan. But there was this one dunk I attempted I sadly will never forget. I remember seeing this exact picture of Clyde dunking and thinking, oh yeah, I'm going to do that. (laughs) Clyde would just gracefully fly through the air with his legs tucked behind him, and I was so stoked to try it. But when I tried it, it did not work out like I had planned. I hit the trampoline, and rather than gracefully flying through the air like Clyde, when I tucked my legs behind me, my body went forward and I face-planted into Eddie's garage door. (laughs) All I remember next was waking up on my parents' bed with a bag of ice on my face. I literally sacrificed my face to be like Clyde. So you can imagine how stoked I was a couple months later when I found out my aunt had gotten me tickets to see the Blazers play the Seattle Seattle Supersonics up in Seattle. Yes, Seattle had an NBA team one time. And that she had a friend who worked for the Sonics that would let me meet all the players after the game. I just remember thinking, I'm finally going to get to meet Clyde. I kept thinking about what he might say to me, what I might say to him. Maybe we would strike up a friendship. You you know, I could chill at Clyde's house. He could come hang out in the driveway with Eddie and I at mine. Well, the moment came when I was standing outside the Blazers team bus with his Blazer pennant and pen, and I saw Clyde coming out of the locker room. And I just remember running up to him with the pen and pennant, and then him looking at me, waiting for me to say something. And I remember thinking, I want to say something, but I honestly don't remember any words coming out of my mouth. After a moment, he just patted me on my head and walked by. I was just in awe. I couldn't say a word. Clyde patted me on the head. Friends, when we are in the presence of greatness, it can have a strange effect on us. Sometimes awe is so overwhelming, we don't know how to respond. But let me ask you this question. If being in the presence of human greatness makes us feel that way, 
What is it like to be in the presence of infinite greatness? If I was starstruck in the presence of someone whose glory consisted of the fact that he can jump 36 inches higher than the average man, what is it like to find yourself in the presence of the one who spoke the universe into existence? Have you you ever thought how big and powerful God must be? This past February, my daughter Sydney and I went to Rwanda. One night on the way to a remote village, we stayed in a wildlife refuge. And I remember walking out at night and being amazed at how many stars you could see at night. We were miles away from the closest electric light. And when there's no light pollution, it looked like you could see millions of stars. Yet astronomers say that on the clearest night, 9,096 stars are visible. And that's out of, listen to this, 3,000 billion trillion stars. If you're counting, that's three with 24 zeros. And what's more than that, Isaiah says that God knows the name of every single one of them. I sometimes forget the names of my neighbors I see every single day. He looks out at each of the 3,000 billion trillion and says, Hey, Sirius, what's up, Pegasus? Hey there, T3.14159er. And each of those 3,000 billion trillion stars puts out the same amount of energy as 500,000 megaton bombs every second. And God created it all with just one word. So how do you think we are supposed to respond and feel in the presence of that God? Reverence and awe. The fear of the Lord is to be in awe of his majestic power and to show him the reverence he is due. The writer of Hebrews says, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, a popular thought is that the fear of the Lord is solely an Old Testament concept. Jesus was gentle. He would never cause anyone to feel fear, let alone nervousness. And friends, don't get me wrong. Jesus' gentleness is amazing. But do you remember the story in Mark 4 when Jesus falls asleep in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee with his disciples? They are filled with fear as this terrible storm hit and they believe their boat is about to capsize and they're going to die. Jesus is asleep so they woke him up. Like, hey, Jesus, do you see what's happening here? Could you, could you get up and do something about it? <laughs> what did Jesus do? Mark says, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Friends, rebuke is what you do to someone who is under your authority, like one of your children. It sounds like this in our home. No, Mariah, you cannot talk back to your mother. No, Caleb, You can't flood the bathtub every time you take a bath. And just like that, Jesus stands up and rebukes the weather like it's nothing but a disobedient child. And here's something else. Be still in Greek is what they call a verb of continuing action, which means he was saying, be quiet and stay quiet. He was like, you sit down. And I will tell you, tell you when you can come out and play again. 
And then it says, the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Not only did the storm die down immediately, the waves died down. Even if you stopped the wind immediately, it would take a couple of hours for the sea itself to calm down. But Jesus did it all at once. So how did the disciples respond to what, when Jesus did this? Verse 41 says, And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Did you hear that? Great fear. When they were in the storm thinking they were going to die, they felt fear. But just plain old regular fear. But after Jesus rescued them, they felt great fear. And in awe, they asked, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Friend, can you imagine being in that boat and witnessing Jesus command the storm? Do you grasp how powerful our God is? Even nature obeys him. And that same voice who commanded the storm to stop is the same voice that spoke everything into existence. We see a similar response in Revelation 1 when John describes meeting Jesus for the first time after he ascended into heaven. Now keep in mind that John and Jesus had been BFFs when Jesus was on, on earth. Best friends forever, right? <laughs> so what is their reunion going to be like? A warm embrace? A high five? A slap on the back? I'll read it to you in John's own words. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And that's not a figure of speech, by the way. John was filled with so much awe when he saw the glorified Jesus, he literally thought he was going to die. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But there is something important here in both of these examples that we need to be mindful of. The great fear the disciples experienced when they saw Jesus silence the storm and the waves was not a fear of someone who was against them, seeking to harm them. They knew his love for them. They knew he was for them. He had just rescued them. And when John was so overcome by awe at seeing Jesus, that he thought he was going to die. It was not because he thought Jesus was trying to harm him or was against him. John, of all people, knew how much Jesus loved him. Remember, he literally went around introducing himself as the one whom Jesus loves. And this is a critical distinction to make. Because for some of us, 
We have experienced fear in the past at the hands of another person in power that may cause us to believe fear always precludes love. For me, as I have mentioned before, it was an abusive teacher. For others, it may have been an abusive parent. But that couldn't be farther from the truth for God with his children. And friend, if you have chosen to trust and follow Jesus, you are his child. As Paul tells us in Galatians 4, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you his heir. Friends, he loves you so much, he sent his son as a sacrifice to suffer the just just punishment for your sin so that he could adopt you as his son or daughter. He is holy and all-powerful, but in that sacrifice, we can see we are safe in his love. This blend of awe and love moves us to worship. And this is the answer to our second question. How do we respond when we fear the Lord? We worship. Worship is our response when we fear the Lord. See, true worship is a mixture of awe and love. Awe at the power and holiness of God and love realizing he gave his own son so that you and I could be his children. This is why Dr. Ed Welch says, the fear of the Lord is a worship fear. The Bible teaches that God's people are no longer driven by terror fear or fear that has to do with punishment. Our sins have been dealt with on the cross. Instead, we are blessed with worship fear, the reverential awe motivated by love and the honor that is due him. Now, before we move on, if you are quietly thinking, I love God, but I do not feel awe towards him, or I don't know this worship fear you are talking about, the psalmist offers us the remedy. Not a harsh rebuke or shame, but an invitation. Look at verse 11. Come, my children, I will teach you. Listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. Friend, fearing the Lord is learned. I have a friend, Jason Kelly, who's been a fireman for many years. He knows a lot about the science of fire. Go camping with him. The guy can make campfires that last days. But something that sticks out to me every time I talk to Jason is that even though he knows a lot about fire, his familiarity with it has not lessened his respect for it. He respects fire and its power more than anyone I know. Friend, it's no different with God. The more you get to know your God, the more you will be filled with awe and the more you will know his great love for you. And how do we get to know him more? How do you get to know anyone more that you desire to have a relationship with? Spend time with them. So talk to him. Pray. Listen to what he has to say to you in his word. This was exactly how Israel's kings were instructed to learn the fear of the Lord. 
Deuteronomy 17 says, When he, the king, takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that may, he may learn to fear the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of his law. The king was to learn to fear the Lord by reading scripture. Friends, the more you know your God, the more in awe of him and his great love you will be. Finally, verse 9 tells us that those who fear the Lord lack nothing. Last question. What does it mean to lack nothing? I've shared before about a season many years ago when Bethany and I were engaged in a court case surrounding one of our foster sons. In short, we felt compelled to challenge his placement back with his parents because his father was a serious threat to children. But in the midst of that court case, a young woman my wife Bethany was mentoring found out she was pregnant and asked us to adopt the baby. Now, if you know anything about adoption, you know independent adoptions are quite expensive. And if you knew anything about us at that point, the court case had made us quite poor. But we prayed and felt like God was calling us to say yes and adopt this child. However, as the day for the baby to be born approached, due to the court case dragging on far longer than we had ever imagined, we literally ran out of all of our money. Bank account, retirement account, couch cushions, everything. And I remember I felt embarrassed about telling anyone about our situation. Even though I was convinced God had told us to say yes, I thought people would just look at me and think, what an utter fool. I remember those nights being filled with so much fear and crying out to God. And then the day came for the baby to be born. We were all at the hospital. Bethany was in the birthing room. And I remember talking to the attorney and realizing we still had no money to pay her fees. Friend, I cannot tell you about the agony I was feeling at that moment. I just kept thinking, what am I going to do? This adoption is not going to happen because I can't even pay the attorney. That evening, I left Bethany at the hospital with the baby. And as I was driving home, she called and said some of our friends had left a gift for us on the front porch. Now, we had some friends who always left a nice meal whenever we had a child the night we came home from the hospital. It was usually from a really nice restaurant, so in the midst of all the turmoil, I was really looking forward to this good meal. But when I got home, the meal wasn't there, as they said. So Bethany inquired again, and they explained that the gift was actually under the doormat. When I lifted up the doormat, I saw what looked like the back of a check. I just remember turning the check over and thinking it said $1,000, and then counting the zeros and realizing it said $10,000. 10000 was the exact amount the attorney said we would need. And our friends had zero idea. We had told no one. I just remember walking into the garage that afternoon and falling on my knees and worshiping. 
I was just so in awe of his power and love. And it was that day he gave me this little gift. At that moment, I was in complete awe of his power and his love. I could affirm with the psalmist, I lacked nothing. He provided all we needed. But a year prior, saying that would have been much more difficult for Bethany and me. In the midst of that legal battle, due to the acrimony and spite, our foster son who had been with us for years was moved from our home. As I have mentioned before, I have never experienced the pain I experienced that day. So friends, how can the psalmist say those who fear the Lord lack nothing? When clearly those who fear him go through horrible loss and pain. David himself went through tremendous loss and pain. Yet he actually seems to double down on the promise in verses 17 through 20 which appear at first to be a blanket promise that God will always deliver those who fear him from troubles and protect us from harm. And the psalmist actually begs this question in verse 20 when he says, he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. What is the psalmist saying here? Friends, this is a messianic prophecy about Jesus that John quotes in his gospel. It is quoted in the account of the crucifixion of Jesus when the soldiers refrained from breaking Jesus' legs to hasten his death because he was already dead. John says in chapter 19, verse 36, these things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. As Kathy Keller says, yes, Tim Keller's brilliant wife, well, yeah, none of his bones got broken, but he did get crucified. That, can't, that kind of doesn't count as being protected from anything bad in my book. So how do we reconcile this? The psalmist says God will protect those who fear, who fear him, yet here's his own son dying a horrific death. Kathy Keller breaks it down for us some more. Well, God may not protect you from every bad thing that might, has, or could happen to you. Ultimately, through resurrection, you are safe. I will walk through death and come out the other side fully healed, restored, saved, and protected. And when God does not protect us from things that harm us, sometimes he protects us as we go through them to the other side of resurrection where our real hopes and happiness lie. Friends, regardless of what happens in this life, he promises to be with you. Verse 7 says, he encamps around those who fear him. He suffered and died for our sin and is now resurrected and sitting at his father's right hand and he lacks nothing. And because of his great sacrifice, we can say with the psalmist, we lack nothing. It is at these tables we remember this reality. He paid it all. We have all we need in him. And even, in, even if it is death we face, well, death is just the doorway to resurrection. So as we move into a time of worship, be mindful. It is a blend of awe and love that makes true worship. And praise him. 
that in him you lack nothing. Come to the tables when you're ready.